If you're tired of these promos, supporters get the podcast early and ad-free. Just go to donate.bogosity.tv for the links to sign up. Welcome to the Bogosity Podcast for the week of May 28, 2023. The podcast that used to love me, but she died. This is your host, Shane Killian. Let's individuate the news of the bogus. From the start, we've been dedicated to pointing out the lies being spread about the Russo-Ukrainian war. Just like we do with all wars, regardless of what war it is or which side you're on, not only is truth the first casualty, people actually make it out like you're spreading propaganda for the other side or something. So with Biden having beaten the war drums long before Putin invaded, This time around, the anti-war side has been conflated with the right wing. But it's nice to know there are still those on the left that hold on to their anti-war roots, like Columbia University professor Jeffrey Sachs, who wrote an article attacking one specific lie in particular, that the Russian invasion was unprovoked. You'd think this is one that people would have stopped falling for. The 9-11 attacks were unprovoked, even though they weren't. Pearl Harbor was unprovoked, even though it wasn't. Soviet missiles in Cuba, the Iran hostage crisis, the West Berlin discotheque, Iraq's invasion of Kuwait, Kosovo, Uganda, Syria, Yemen. The challenge seems to be to find an attack the U.S. just had to respond to that actually was unprovoked. And he's smart. He's quick off the bat to point out that it does not justify Russia's invasion, which we've been critical of from the start as well. Putin had other options he could have gone to first. The Donbass situation growing intolerable, he could have intervened to have their voices actually heard in the UN instead of ignored, or given them audiences in China, India, or other places. In a way, not doing that just made it easier for Biden and NATO to claim it was unprovoked but that still doesn't make it true. Biden just has to keep throwing in the word unprovoked every chance he gets. The more someone makes a claim like that, without it being in response to someone claiming otherwise, the more you should regard it with suspicion. In fact, there were two provocations. The first was the intent to expand NATO into Ukraine and Georgia for the purpose of surrounding Russia's Black Sea access. The second, as we've covered, is the U.S.-led coup to overthrow the democratically elected President Viktor Yanukovych in February of 2014. And if anyone is still in doubt as to that, check the show notes for a link to Glenn Greenwald's reporting on Rumble where he brings the receipts, demonstrating this using archived videos you won't see replayed in the news media. But it's all in the public record. And there are three reasons why. First, acknowledging these truths would expose the fact that Biden and NATO also had other options to quickly stop or even avoid the war, not to mention more than $100 billion in U.S. taxpayer dollars and a growing threat of a nuclear exchange. Second, it would have exposed Biden's role in the Euromaidan coup, his advocacy of NATO expansion, and how he's completely in the back pocket of the military-industrial complex. Third, it would mean Biden actually going to the negotiating table, which would threaten his expansionist and imperialistic plans. Sachs brings receipts of his own, 
Just follow his links to irrefutable public archives showing the promise explicitly made, now vehemently denied, that the U.S. and Germany repeatedly promised to Mikhail Gorbachev that NATO would not move, quote, one inch eastward. That was a condition for the Soviet Union disbanding the Warsaw Pact. He also shows that, even at the time, NATO was planning to push for eastward expansion even before Putin became president, and also how they knew this could lead to war, with the New York Times reporting, quote, Such a decision may be expected to inflame the nationalistic, anti-Western, and militaristic tendencies in Russian opinion, to have an adverse effect on the development of Russian democracy, to restore the atmosphere of the Cold War to East-West relations, and to impel Russian foreign policy in directions decidedly not to our liking. William Perry, Bill Clinton's Secretary of Defense, even threatened to resign over it. Quote, Our first action that really set us off in a bad direction was when NATO started to expand, bringing in Eastern European nations, some of them bordering Russia. At that time, we were working closely with Russia, and they were beginning to get used to the idea that NATO could be a friend rather than an enemy. But they were very uncomfortable about having NATO right up on their border, and they made a strong appeal for us not to go ahead with that. He gives other examples as well. The U.S., NATO, and Ukraine clearly knew that pushing for NATO expansion would lead to war. Zelensky's then-advisor even said in 2019, quote, our price for joining NATO is a big war with Russia. We already covered how Yanukovych pushed for neutrality and a tripartite agreement between Ukraine, Russia, and the EU, and how only the EU opposed this. Sachs also confirms that this was in line with what Ukrainians wanted. If Russia's attack was unprovoked, then as we've been asking this whole time, why have they been the ones offering to come to the peace table? Why were they offering diplomatic options back in 2021 before it even started? And why was it Biden, who always rejected it, even convincing Zelensky not to? We've long passed the point where it matters who's right and who's wrong, if anyone ever was. It just needs to stop. And anyone getting in the way of that is nothing more than an enemy of humanity. If you're looking for a way to support this channel, but you don't have any spare cash and you can't stand ads, you can do so by generating your own cryptocurrency. Use the links at the bottom of the description to follow the link to odyssey.com to listen to the podcast and see all of my YouTube videos as well. Just watching videos will produce cryptocurrency for the creator and yourself. And since Odyssey is always monetized and never censored, you'll have no problem seeing all the videos from your favorite creators. You can also use the library credits you created Odyssey to tip creators and even purchase paid content. Earn library credits through various rewards, including daily view rewards and the number of shares and invites. And you can interact with creators in all sorts of ways, including like and dislike, comment, boost a post by supporting it, repost it, and share to other sites, all while earning crypto for the creator. Easily monetize yourself and your favorite creators using cryptocurrency without advertising. Use the link below to visit this channel on odyssey.com and see many of your other favorites there as well. All 
right, some good news back home. My home state of North Carolina might be labeling nuclear power as clean energy. North Carolina currently has five nuclear reactors in operation, providing almost a third of the state's electricity. Since the state's clean energy initiative hasn't exactly been going that well due to problems with so-called renewables that we've gone over in the past, the Promote Clean Energy Act, which passed last year in the House and this past week in the Senate, would not only consider carbon-free nuclear energy as clean energy, but also repeal statutes restricting the construction of more nuclear facilities. But although the bill showed strong bipartisan support in the House vote and unanimously passed in the Senate, Governor Roy Cooper is opposing it. The moron is saying that politicians shouldn't have influence over what energy sources are prioritized, but that's exactly what's going on now, and this bill would do a great deal to eliminate it. The bill changes references across the North Carolina statutes from renewable energy to clean energy, modifies the definition to include both nuclear fission and fusion, and eliminates requirements of certificates of public convenience and necessity for the construction of new clean energy facilities. We also have to put up with environmentalist whack jobs like those at Clean Air NC who spread the usual lies about nuclear, how it's not really clean, blah 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 waste, blah 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 safety. But the state is in a good position to become a leader in nuclear technology, with GE Hitachi being based in Wilmington. Emmett Penny, editor-in-chief of the energy newsletter Grid Brief, said, quote, Nuclear is one of the safest, cleanest, and almost abundant energy sources we have. North Carolina's bill to recognize it as such is a vital step forward towards energy realism, a boon for the country and for the state. Isaac Orr, Policy Fellow for Energy and Environmental Issues at the Center for the American Experiment, said, quote, Nuclear is the most efficient energy resource we have, routinely generating more than 90% of its potential output, while wind and solar in North Carolina operate about 30% and 21% respectively. We know nuclear works all the time. We don't know if the wind will be blowing or the sun will be shining. Bryson Hyman of the John Locke Foundation wrote, Any endeavor seeking to lower carbon emissions while also seeking to maintain the reliability of any energy grid must have nuclear power as part of the mix. Nuclear power produces zero carbon. It is safe and reliable. Additionally, the amount of land use required for a nuclear facility is substantially smaller versus the excessive amount of land required from solar and wind to adequately power the grid. Adding nuclear to the definitions of clean energy is not only conscious of reliability, a requirement in NC law, but it is environmentally conscious. Now it only remains to see if Roy Cooper will do the right thing for once. If you're on the Wi-Fi in a coffee shop or hotel, anyone on that network can get your traffic. Do you really trust all of those strangers? For that matter, do you really trust your ISP? 
A VPN can protect you from prying eyes, disguise your location, and even foil government censors. It's essential in this day and age. So go to vpn.bogosity.tv and you'll be taken to BoxPN. Starting at just $2.99 a month, you can get unlimited high-speed connections to VPN servers all over the world. And they don't log connections, so your privacy is assured. Traveling abroad, just VPN home and don't worry about what those other governments are doing. Back at home, stop your ISP from traffic shaping and messing with the quality internet access you're paying good money for. You can connect from multiple machines at once, including your smartphone or tablet, and it supports all the secure standards, including OpenVPN and SSTP. Bypass sensors and surveillance with your own secure VPN connection. Go to vpn.pagosity.tv. Now for more stupid copyright tricks, this time from the Supreme Court. As the most visible figure of the pop art movement, a sort of neo-Dadaism, Andy Warhol's Campbell's Soup Cans, Marilyn Diptych, and other works cast a distorting lens on corporatized media inspired by his creative frustrations during his early career as a commercial illustrator. One popular art style of his, as seen in the Marilyn Diptych among others, uses existing photographs of famous people to satirize the falsity of their presentations in mainstream media. The photos are copied several times over and given unnatural colors using silt screening. Although he didn't take the original photographs or obtain permission to use them, their use as social commentary means they fall under the fair use exception to copyright. Of course, the difference is Warhol's use was transformative. It wasn't a drop-in replacement for the original work. Now, an appropriation of a Lynn Goldsmith photograph of Prince recolored in a like manner and retitled Orange Prince, was used in Vanity Fair, published alongside a story about Prince himself. They probably didn't even realize the irony of them using it that way. Warhol would have loved it. That made it come to a head in the Supreme Court case Warhol Foundation v. Goldsmith, which was decided 7-2 against the Warhol Foundation. The majority opinion written by Justice Sotomayor as is the want of several justices, is very restrictive, focusing on the specifics of the case rather than the larger issues. Spoiler alert, that'll end up being a problem. She and the majority ruled that since Vanity Fair used it in a context when any photo of Prince would have had the same purpose, Warhol's work isn't transitory, and therefore, fair use doesn't apply here. Quote, Goldsmith's original photograph of Prince and AWF's copying use of that photograph in an image licensed to a special edition magazine devoted to Prince share substantially the same purpose and the use is of a commercial nature. AWF has offered no other persuasive justification for its unauthorized use of the photograph. Therefore, the purpose and character of the use, including whether such use is of a commercial nature or is for non-profit educational purposes, ways in Goldsmith's favor. This is all more significant than it sounds. While it makes sense on the surface, the Supreme Court, in not getting into the larger issues, actually undermined those larger issues by making the idea of transformation apply not to the creativity put into the work itself, but the market for it as a whole, the use of it instead of the creativity of it. Note that they were suing the Warhol Foundation, not Vanity Fair. If part of the story had been about Warhol's depiction of Prince, 
things might have been different. Same work, same idea, but one would have been fair use and the other one wouldn't. As Kagan, in a dissent joined by the Chief Justice, wrote, It is not just that the majority does not realize how much Warhol added, it is that the majority does not care. In adopting that posture of indifference, the majority does something novel. Before today, we assess the purpose and character of a copier's use by asking the following question. Does the work add something new with a further purpose or different character, altering the original with new expression, meaning, or message? When it did so to a significant degree, we called the work transformative and held that the fair use test's first factor favored the copier. But today's decision, all the majority's protestations notwithstanding, leaves our first factor inquiry in shambles. Because that factor is now tied to the use of the work and not the work itself. Quote, That doctrinal shift ill serves copyright's core purpose. The law does not grant artists exclusive rights, that is, monopolies, for their own sake. It does so to foster creativity, to promote the progress of both arts and science. And for that same reason, the law also protects the fair use of copyrighted material. Both Congress and the courts have long recognized that an overly stringent copyright regime actually stifles creativity by preventing artists from building on the work of others. For, let's be honest, artists don't create all on their own. They cannot do what they do without borrowing from or otherwise making use of the work of others. That is the way artistry of all kinds, visual, musical, literary, happens, as it is the way knowledge and invention generally develop. The fair use test's first factor responds to that truth. As understood in our precedent, it provides breathing space for artists to use existing materials to make fundamentally new works for the public's enjoyment and benefit. In now remaking that factor, and thus constricting fair use's boundaries, the majority hampers creative progress and undermines creative freedom. Gotta agree with Kagan on this one. The Supreme Court might just have undermined this first point henceforth. We'll have to see how lower courts and future Supreme Courts reinterpret it. And with the transformation of existing works that is AI, it just might have a bigger effect than you think, sooner rather than later. Do you have children, or nieces or nephews? Are you homeschooling, or just want to counter some of the socialist indoctrination most children get in school? If so, go to bogosity.tv slash Tuttletwins, and you'll be taken to a website where you can get some great books for elementary-aged children. The Tuttle Twins books are books about liberty and free market economics that include children's versions of Bastiat's The Law, Leonard Reed's I Pencil, and Hayek's The Road to Serfdom, as well as books about the Federal Reserve and how regulations protect business cronies. They'll learn about the harm caused by eminent domain, or regulations passed in the name of safety, and fundamental concepts of liberty. And as you can see from the sample pages on the website, they're all easy to read and nicely illustrated. They're just $9.99 a piece, or get a special discount as well as free bonuses when you purchase all five. You can even buy in bulk to donate to schools and local libraries. So get the Tuttle Twins books at bogosity.tv slash Tuttle Twins. (laughs) 
And now it's time to misappropriate this week's biggest bogan emitter. And it's another one for the SEC. Yes, about SECV Library again. They made their desires clear when they revised their $22 million penalty down to $111,614, citing libraries, quote, lack of funds and near-defunct status. Yeah, that was their idea all along. Make it so expensive to fight that they can no longer continue to exist. And then go do that with other crypto companies. They also argued that Library should be enjoined until it dissolves the company and burns all its tokens. Exactly how it's supposed to do that is unclear since most of the tokens are no longer in its possession, but the rule is clear. Nothing more than completely destroying the cryptocurrency will satisfy the SEC that no illegal securities exchange is taking place. The Howey test be damned! Remember that throughout this process, Library asked over and over and over again what was the proper way to proceed, if they needed to register and how, and what could be done to make sure they operated legally. The SEC, at every turn, refused to answer any such question whatsoever. And there's a similar situation with the dissolution of the centralized exchange Voyager, which, I'll be honest, wasn't any good. I tried them. In their bankruptcy case, Judge Michael E. Wiles blasted the SEC for their horrible behavior. The proposed bankruptcy deal involves moving their customers over to Binance. The SEC objected, saying, quote, that in its view, the debtors had the burden to prove that the rebalancing of the debtors' cryptocurrency portfolios would not involve illegal purchases and sales of securities. How many times do we have to point out how burden of proof works? Judge Wiles complained, quote, The objection did not take the position that any particular cryptocurrencies are securities or otherwise explain how or why the debtors' rebalancing activities might be illegal, the SEC also suggested that the debtor should be required to prove that Binance.us is not operating as a securities broker without registering as such. Once again, the SEC did not actually take the position that Binance.us is operating as an unregistered and unlicensed securities broker. Instead, it just suggested that the debtors had the burden to prove the negative without offering any evidence or even any reason to think that Binance.us is actually doing anything for which it requires further SEC registrations. Voyager operated, and Binance.us currently operates in a regulatory environment that at best can be described as highly uncertain. Wow, and this from a judge in the Southern District of New York? How badly does a government agency have to fail to get them to complain about them? And they are turning their attention to other cryptos, even complete DAOs like Dash, which they claim is owned by a group they mislabel, perhaps intentionally as Dash Control Group. It's actually Dash Core Group, and they're just the development company owned by the DAO itself. Judge Weil spoke on that, too, quote, The SEC has filed some actions against particular firms with regard to particular cryptocurrencies, and those actions suggest that a wider regulatory assault may be forthcoming. And he complained that they hadn't, quote, offered any guidance at all as to just what it was that the debtors allegedly were supposed to prove on these issues or how the debtors possibly could prove what the SEC wanted them to prove 
without receiving any explanation at all from SEC as to just why the debtor's operations or Binance.us's operations might raise legal issues. Just like with Library and XRP, they can't get any of their facts straight, they have zero understanding of this technology, and yet they're so certain that they're illegal unregistered securities that harm who that they're willing to settle for nothing less than the complete and utter destruction of the network. And they don't even seem to realize how impossible that is. Meanwhile, Library tweeted, The last filing in our case is due today. The SEC is going to hate it. Hopefully it makes a difference. The SEC, like the ATF, FBI, and so many other agencies in the Biden administration, is completely out of control. So all of that makes the SEC this week's biggest bogan emitter. I want to tell you about the eyeglasses I've been wearing for years. As people can see on my videos, I have a very strong prescription, which makes glasses more expensive, especially when I need computer glasses, reading glasses, prescription sunglasses, and most expensively, progressive lenses for general everyday wear. To save money while still getting quality glasses, I get them from Fermu. In fact, I just got a pair of progressives with high-index aspherical lenses and a nice pair of frames my wife loves for just over $100. It would have been $500 to get them through my eye doctor. Not only do they look good, the glasses are durable. I've worn many pairs for several years without problems. All orders come with a 30-day return policy, a 3-month warranty, and one-on-one -on -one customer service. Go to Firmu, that's F-I-R-M-O-O dot Bogosity dot TV, anytime you need quality glasses at a low price. Once again, that's Firmu dot Bogosity dot TV. And now let's regenerate this week's... Idiot And this week it goes to the UK's Secretary Minister Tom Tugendhat for his annual conference on encryption hating. Well, it might as well be called that. I think I'm just going to formally propose think of the children as a fallacy and any use of the phrase or anything close to it means you've automatically lost the argument. Quote, it was extraordinarily important to shed a light on the unimaginable abuse that we've seen suffered by children over many, many years. It found quite simply appalling examples of organizations placing their own interests ahead of children's safety, either by turning a blind eye or covering up the abuse. And if that isn't bad enough, quote, Protecting children online isn't just a career, it's more of a calling every bit as personal as it is professional. The reason I'm here today is that for me, keeping children safe isn't just another issue or even just the right thing to do. It's personal and every bit as important as my role's traditional focus on terrorism and state threats. Never mind the fact that banning strong encryption will put them far more at risk than it will protect them. He's just so over the top with emotion in this long speech that was completely devoid of facts or even any argumentation. 
He specifically targeted Meta and their products, Facebook and Instagram. As security expert Matthew Green tweeted, One of the lessons tech firms are receiving is that voluntary compliance is a terrible mistake. For example, Facebook worked hard to improve their CSAM detection algorithms, and now they're being torn to pieces for it. So, of course, other companies aren't doing the same. This was in response to his comments that, quote, In 2022, NCMEC received over 32 million reports of suspected child sexual exploitation and abuse. 21 million of these came from Facebook alone. But the only reason that many came from Facebook is because Facebook reported them. And as Green pointed out, that just means that other companies are going to have the incentive to hide as much of it as they can. And Green also points out the multiplier issue, quote, A second lesson tech firms are receiving is that reporting CSAM often has no consequences for the reported user. Most are overseas in jurisdictions where they can't be touched. So Meta closes an account, and the same user opens a new one. Now Meta has twice as much CSAM. While Tuganaut screeches on like a conspiracy nut, quote, We will shortly be launching a campaign, a campaign to tell parents the truth about Meta's choices and what they mean for the safety of their children, and a campaign to encourage tech firms to take responsibility and to do the right thing. We'll set out our case in the papers, in magazines, over the airwaves, and online. We'll work with law enforcement agencies, children's safety organizations, like-minded international counterparts through bodies such as the G7 and Five Eyes, and tech experts with authority on technical solutions and their feasibility. So, basically spying and astroturfing. And who wants to bet more surreptitious government censorship of opposing opinions. What exactly is he demanding of them anyway? Well, quote, We will not stop until we are satisfied that Meta and others are serious about finding a solution and until they have strong safety systems in place to protect children. In other words, nerd harder! So the more of it you actually find, the more of it you actually solve, the bigger the numbers that hysterical nimrods like Tugana can use to call for even more violations of our privacy, with no mention of the unintended consequences of that. So all of that makes Tom Tuganaut this week's Idiot wraps up this I Feel Like I'm Going Into Labor edition of the Bogosity Podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please go to donate.bogosity.tv for several ways to support and discord.bogosity.tv to join the discussion. Subscribe at Patreon or Subscribestar and you can listen early and ad-free. Thank you for listening. Until next time, here's a quote from Booker T. Washington. You can't hold a man down without staying down with him. The Bogosity Podcast is licensed under Creative Commons Attribution on Commercial No Derivatives 4.0 International License. Bogosity.